Hey friends, on Plain Spoken, I do interviews routinely within the Wesleyan Methodist movement because that's where I'm located and that's what I'm concerned with. But I did a uh, an interview with a young man named Ryan Turnipseed a couple weeks ago, which if you haven't seen it, I'd, I'd urge you to. The, the, the large thrust of that is that liberal progressivism is not something particular to United Methodism, but it's something that's infiltrated all Christian denominations to one degree or another in the West, uh, not just in the U.S., but in Europe. We know that in theory, but then the particulars of how that is operated in other tribes, it's not history that's known really well. Most Methodists, former United Methodists, know vaguely that it's happened, but we don't know the particulars of where and how and what that timeline was like. I think that there's a lot to be gained from uh, looking at other denominations and what happened there, and then seeing the common threads for how things operate, the kind of personalities that rise to the top, the kind of rhetoric that is heard throughout um, the the shift from um, a, a tradition pursuing biblical orthodoxy and the tradition that they've inherited versus uh, a new worldly ideology that, that has no compunction about... Uh, taking over <laughs> something designed for something else. So um, after I did the turnip seed interview, I had a number of Lutherans reach out to me just showing appreciation for his person and what he's doing and then wanting to, to provide a little bit more texture uh, as to Lutheranism in America and, and what happened there. Today, I'm really glad to be joined by uh, the Reverend Dean Wheeler. Uh, Wheeler. He is from California originally and grew up uh, witnessing some kind of revival within Protestant Christianity there. Um, he went to undergrad for education, but then went and got his seminary degree at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary in Berkeley, California. Um, he was a pastor for a few decades. He went through um, the ELCA was formed just a couple of years after he um, got into the um, denomination that he was in, and then he also exited that denomination and was a part of um, that milieu of what was going on at that time. So we're going to hear a lot more of his story and the particulars there and the things that he thinks are important for uh, Methodists and then American Christians more broadly to, to keep in mind. Uh, so at this time, Dean, thank you so much for joining me. How are you feeling this morning, brother? I feel great, Jeffrey. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, I'm excited to be with you and to share with your audience. Yeah, I think I think this is going to be really good uh, for me personally because I was as I was telling you before we started recording, I know the the history of Martin Luther and the original Protestant Reformation in Europe, mm -hmm. and then I know a little bit about the last couple decades of Lutheranism in America, thanks to Ryan Turnipseed. But the in between yeah. parts, I know pretty much nothing about. I've been pretty in my own world. Um, but the the ELCA is is the largest, is it still the largest Lutheran body in America? It is, It's and that it would be the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, mm -hmm. and um, it is the largest, though I think it's, I want to say it's lost about two million members uh, since I, since it was originally formed. Yeah, I looked up some of the stats when it was originally formed in, uh, well, it says 1970, but it wasn't formed until 1989, right? Right. So I think what they did was they looked at, uh, the ELCA was formed in 1989 by three different Lutheran denominations coming together, much True. like the United Methodist Church was uh, three different denominations coming together in 1968, yeah. and then that was the biggest they ever were. It was consistent decline after that. 
But I, I think what they did in this juicy ecumenism um, uh, article I was looking at was they put all three denominations together. And in 1974, no, no, 1970, they had 8.44 million combined members. And then when they combined, um, they were down to 5.34. Does that sound right? Starting size of 5.34 million? Uh, that does sound right. Yes. Okay. And then today, according to Wikipedia, they have over... Nope, that's the North American Lutheran Church. Okay, they have... Uh, they're headquartered in Chicago, Illinois. It was formed on January 1st, 1988 by the merging of those three bodies. In 2015, Pew Research estimated that 1.4% of the U.S. population self-identifies with the ELCA. So that's, that's important. It's the seventh largest Christian denomination by reported membership and the largest Lutheran denomination in the United States. Um, let's see. It, let's, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has 1.8 million baptized members. The Wisconsin uh, Church has 340,000 members. The ELCA belongs to the... It doesn't have the current membership there. So what, what's the current membership? Do you know it? Of the ELCA? Okay, here um, it has it in 2021, a little over 3 million baptized members. Yeah, Okay. I would say. So there has yes. been a significant decline, though perhaps not as bad or dramatic as the United Methodist Church. Um, I'm not as familiar with the decline in the United Methodist Church, though I know it's happening, mm -hmm. as it is in most mainline churches. Right. Uh, but um, I would also say that, and perhaps this is similar in the uh, United Methodist Church, that what the numbers are aren't necessarily who's sitting in the, you know, who's who's <laughs> attending worship on right. a Sunday morning. Yes. You, so we you, might have one thing on paper, but another thing. Yeah. In the, so yeah, the the ELCA. The only point where I've really hit on them. I don't know if you saw the segment I did, but have have you seen the Sparkle Creed that was done in that ELCA church? Your face yes. tells me yes. Okay. Well, you you surely were not surprised to see that such a thing was being conducted in an ELCA church, right? Yeah. Uh, it, so I felt greatly saddened by it. Sure. And um, probably a little angry. And yes, I I was not totally surprised. I you know uh, the it, it you know the in the the fact that it's out there and it's out there all over. I mean, it wasn't the first time I saw it. Right. On social media when I watched uh, what you did with it. Oh, yeah, and you got to see my treatment. Yeah. yeah, see, oh. so as I look at it, and I, I suspect you're of the same mind, is when we're looking at that happening, we're actually not looking at a Lutheran church. We're looking at a progressive liberal church, and that's something yes. that would take place in— well, the author of the Sparkle Creed was a UCC female pastor, hmm. um, but yeah. then you could expect to see that in Episcopalian church. I, I have no— yes. uh, I, I, I can easily imagine some United Methodist churches gladly saying such a creed. Um, the, this is an ideology that has invaded a lot of different denominations, and it, it really is. Um, they, they hold the banner of tolerance, but they're intolerant of anything other than that. So the, the uh, documents of the ELCA mm -hmm. are, for the, for the most part, very orthodox. I would consider them orthodox, I yeah. should say. yeah. Um, but the practice is something totally different uh, within many, uh, if not now most, churches in the ELCA. So, you know, that's, that's heresy. I just consider it heresy. It's heretical. It's, yeah. it's um, 
it's opposed to the Nicene Creed. Mm -hmm. It's a slap in the face. Lutherans in their uh, ordinations, all Lutherans uh, say that they adhere to the apostles, the Nicene and the Athanasius Creed. Really? Uh, and the Athanasian Creed? I did yeah, not know yeah. that. Okay. Oh, yeah. That yeah, one, that one ends West with a, a curse. A, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's hardcore. So, yeah. wait, all and, ELCA and pastors up, sign on to all three of those creeds? Oh, yes. Yes. So well, they're just they, liars. They vow to adhere to them. Okay. So commonalities um, I'm already drawing between the UMC and the ELCA is that on paper, um, yeah. they have good doctrine, solid doctrine, but it's not adhered to in the local church. The leadership does not hold people to that standard, and people, as they take ordination vows, are lying to get in to then betray that trust. Correct. Correct. A lot there of commonalities. Would be, um, the, like the pastor or that church mm -hmm. that did that sparkle creed, mm -hmm. uh, there would, there's um, no discipline would be done. As a matter of fact, my guess is that their synodical bishop, their, that'd be their regional bishop, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would totally approve of that in their given situation. Well, let's, let's, let's take a step back and yeah. allow you to give us a portrait of how... Sure. How about let's start with what is it that you particularly love and find valuable about the Lutheran tradition broadly, and then sketch out um, what history you think is essential to know about Lutheranism in America and wh where it is that, that you've located yourself. Sure. Well, I, I grew up in the Lutheran church. I met Jesus uh, both in my home and in the church, and, um, and I was given a really solid uh, creedal um, foundation and understanding of scripture uh, from my local church and from the parish. Uh, as far as Lutheranism itself, I mean, I, I swore, I vowed in my ordination to adhere to the unaltered Augsburg Confession and the Lutheran Confessions. And um, I, I took those seriously. Um, and studied those, read those. I think they're fine, historical, great documents. Um, it's What Lutheran body were you I, raised in? I was raised in what was known as the American Lutheran Church. Okay, it was you. a moderate, confessional, uh, mostly pietistic, if your, your readers or your hearers would know that. Methodism uh, is very influenced by pietism, German pietism. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes, and, and so, of course, is Luther, it was the American Lutheran Church in okay. which I was raised. Uh, and the, you know, I just appreciated the historical uh, theological foundation. Uh, you should be, uh, those kind of creedal confessional churches mm -hmm. uh, should be pretty solid and not swayed uh, by every wind or whim that comes along. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sh they should be. Uh, a foundational churches in which you should be able to trust in uh, their orthodoxy mm -hmm. and uh, their love for Jesus. But I think that's come into question now. Yeah, there's a real, within the whole milieu of American Christianity, there within charismatic circles has been a big pushback against 
what they would probably characterize as high church, liturgical churches that yeah. recite things congregationally, including the creeds. And one uh, critique that they would level that I think has to be well taken at this point is just because you're saying something doesn't mean you believe it. Oh, We've, oh for sure. in our culture, managed to create a, a great distance between what people confess with their lips and what they believe in their hearts. Um, yeah. So there's many within the creed or uh, uh, charismatic tradition who say, we don't need the creeds. We just need the Bible, and we need people who actually believe this stuff. And then there are people like me and you, I, I suspect, who just think that's a really unfortunate place to be in, where huh. how about we just insist that people mean what they say? Yeah. Um, tell, tell the truth. Yeah. It, it, you know, if, you, if you've uh, changed your mind about the creeds, then say so. And get out. <laughs> And get out and yeah. get out. That's the important out. part. You yeah. know, the, the, uh, the, um, so, uh, just the, uh, just the brief story about this. Uh, and I think it was one of the, the signal points of the problem that the ELCA was, you know, eventually had. This was a uh, years before I left, mm-hmm. but, uh, was the called the common mission, uh, which is, was a, an agreement between the Episcopal Church and the ELCA. And uh, it was that uh, the ELCA would change its understanding of bishops uh, and would fold them into the historic episcopacy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there are, there are traditions in Lutheranism, long traditions in Lutheranism for historic episcopacy mm-hmm. um, in the Church of Sweden. So as people who but, are listening to this, episcopacy yeah. is uh, the role and function of bishops. It comes from the yes. Greek episkopos, which means overseer. There are some traditions who think that uh, the episkopos uh, bishop is just another form of, of elder on the same rank and playing field. There are other, uh, they're usually called episcopal traditions that believe that uh, the bishop is a rank above elder and deacon. And so what what I think you're representing is there are Lutheran traditions that do distinguish between that rank of bishop and elder. However, maybe a majority don't. A bishop is just a kind of elder, a different True. function among the elder. True. Okay. True. Okay. Uh, I think uh, I just want to bring up, you know, saying, uh, saying on paper one thing, mm-hmm. but yet, but believing another. So the historic episcopacy, the ELCA adopted historic episcopacy. They brought over Swedish bishops to start ordaining new bishops in the ELCA. Okay. uh, Believing, of course, and saying, of course, that these would be in line with Peter. The, um, but then telling pastors like me who are already ordained Mm -hmm. that just because we say it doesn't mean we actually have to believe it. Mm. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was early on in the ELCA that happened. Um, And along with that though, did come uh, more of a, more, I would say a power and the power shift from congregation to the local Bishop. Hmm. So, yeah, there's uh, traditional Roman Catholic theology says that ordination proceeds directly through the apostolic succession, where Peter and the original apostles would lay hands on the the elders they instructed and empowered within the church, and on down that line, those in faithful communion with the church have been ordained, and that uh, what happened with the Protestant Reformation is a severing of that. So within different Protestant traditions, they have to legitimate their leadership somehow— 
Some I do think wink at the apostolic tradition and say, we're carrying forward the real tradition of Peter and the Romans left it behind. And then there are other traditions that are Protestant just saying, no, 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 that's not really how ordination works. Rather, that's something conferred by the Holy Spirit in union with the church, and we don't need that literal connection with with Peter in that Roman Catholic sense. But you find these uh, a lot of Protestant denominations out of an ecumenical desire uh, kind of fudging on that theology, not really sussing out that theology very well. I know the United Methodist Church has always been kind of weird in its theology of ordination. It sounds like the ELCA likewise um, said one thing on paper to to be more um, appealing in an ecumenical sense yeah. to other denominations, but it didn't really believe um, a lot of that yeah. that theology that it was constructing around ordination. No, and we, and we were just told as pastors, we don't have to believe this. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, that wasn't in writing, but it, that's what was told to us uh-huh. when we when we started to object to what was happening. So, so one of the things that you and many others within the ELCA cared about was uh, the rhetoric around your um, theology of um, ordination and ecclesiology. You, you sense that there was a drift. Uh, I, I, oh yes, okay. uh, ecclesiology. I would say ecclesiology in particular yeah. uh, was a, uh, a big issue. It became people, a, a very big issue where the power, where yeah. power structure, where the authority is coming from. So for lay people, ecclesiology just comes from the Greek uh, ecclesia, which means the assembly or the, the assembled body yeah. of believers, the church, the body of Christ, and how it is that that is supposed to be literally constructed so far as different functions and roles within uh, the larger connectional structure. So go ahead. So, uh, you know, go, coming from being raised and ordained within the American Lutheran Church, and then two years into my uh, parish ministry, uh, the American Lutheran Church merging mm-hmm. with other churches and forming the ELCA, the ELCA structure uh, was that not that there is the local church that has the power, but that, that there are actually, in their documents, three churches. Hmm. There's the... There's the, and it might be similar to, because you use the same word with conferences, mm-hmm. but there's the, the local church, yeah. there's the regional or synodical church, okay. and then there's the national church. Okay. okay. And prior to that, um, the, in the, at least in the American Lutheran Church that I grew up in, uh, it wa- there was only really one church, and it was the local church. Okay. And the others served the local church, or we're supposed to be serving the local church to help it in its mission. That was the directionality of that relationship was from yep. the, the big towards the small, not the yes. small towards the big. Right. Okay. And that flip that flipped with the um, formation. merger. Okay. Yeah, formation of the ELCA. Yeah, in Methodism, it's more complicated than that. In our um, right. founding documents, the the primary unit of the United Methodist Church is actually the annual conference, and local churches are members of that conference, and the, the conference is the primary unit organizing the the mission and activity of, of the local churches, which hypothetically can work quite well, uh, but in, in practice, what that meant was as, as people gained the high ground they could impose a a hostile ideology on on what came below. And so you saw something similar in the ELCA, huh? Oh, definitely. Yeah. The the power shifted. 
So the the ELCA was formed in 88, 89. You, you immediately were on board with them because you were part of one of those preceding denominations. Yeah, it, uh, right. And Correct. so you were with them for a couple of decades and you got to watch this uh, decay take place within the, the doctrine and structure of the ELCA. At what point did you and others start getting clear that, that the ELCA just wasn't going to be a good home for you? I, 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 for me uh, in particular, it mm-hmm. wasn't a, a coming to realization of this. It was more of a, a, a an event that happened. You know, it was a light switch kind of yeah. conversation I had with somebody that uh, actually my mentor who was staying in the ELCA and was fighting for orthodoxy mm-hmm. within the ELCA, who after after me fighting uh, within the Senate for mm-hmm. authenticity of, of script, the authenticity of scripture, um, he, he just advised me to leave. So uh, why, why was he resolved that he should stay and that you should leave? What was the difference between him and you to his mind? Well, one was um, he was at the time he was, he was, he had formed a seminary, uh, that was rogue. Okay. And so he wasn't work. He wasn't a parish pastor at the time. And I was, and, the and pressures so he, were just you know, different. he just said to me, yeah, it floored me. I, because I was, um, I had been fighting or, you know, uh, d- debating and struggling mm-hmm. to try to maintain orthodoxy, at least within our region. Yeah. Our fanatical region. Which you're still yeah. in California. Um, say that again. Where, where, what Senate are you part of? Where are you in the country? Sure. So, uh, I was raised in California and, but my first call was to the East Central Senate of Wisconsin. Okay. Packers. Sure. Okay. Green Bay. Yeah. And of course there's a Wisconsin Senate of Lutheran churches, but there wasn't Uh, any connection between you guys. Okay. They, they would not even pray with me. Okay. Yeah, where 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 are the theological distinctions that the Wisconsin Synod, even back in the day where the ELCA wasn't so clearly signaling left, where where was the the clear division between your Lutheran denominations? I think that the um, you know the way it was talked about was that the the what's known as the Wisconsin Synod. Mm-hmm. Is extremely conservative. Right. Yeah, uh, they don't acknowledge any female, not even not just clergy, but even female laity cannot be given voice or yeah. vote. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. They're not allowed to vote. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, there was a discussion with the in Wisconsin Senate that um, they shouldn't uh, run choirs or even play the organ, which would be devastating uh, probably to most local churches because that was a form of leadership. Oh, that women shouldn't. Okay. So wouldn't. Yeah. 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 So then from the beginning, the ELCA had women clergy, right? um, Yes. Okay. Because our predecessor bodies uh, ordained women. Yeah. So uh, that early on. that would be an easy theological distinction yep. between the Missouri Synod and oh, the, yes. that, the ELCA. That'd be an easy one. Okay. Yes. That would be in yeah. So so there would be people like me and you who within our 
uh, mainline denominations would be considered conservative, but it, with respect to other much more conservative traditions, they look at us and go, you're still oh, pretty liberal, man. No, 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 right. <laughs> no, I'm, no. Yeah. You, worse than just being liberal, I'm yeah. probably going to hell. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's for uh, God to judge, I guess, uh, and for us right, to discern yeah, for I'll ourselves. But, okay, so the the ELCA kept drifting leftward. It started yes. off in a kind of centrist theological position, as, as I would understand it, but then voices right. on the left continued to, to grab positions of authority and power, produce documents representing the denomination that, that were not representative of Scripture or historic understandings of Scripture, and then eventually the wedge that drove uh, people out um, was the gender critical theory stuff that that came about around gay people serving in the pulpit and gay people being married to people of the same sex slash gender under the auspices of the church. Legislation was finally adopted by the ELCA, blessing same-sex unions and and uh, having some kind of ambivalence towards gay clergy, at which point the North American Lutheran Church was formed in 2010 and a lot of ELCA clergy and churches split off and left. Did I did I say that history right? Uh, yeah. You know, I think that the that the real issue, the presenting issue, obviously, was homosexuality. Sure. About fifteen years fifteen years ago, but the the real issue was the place of scripture mm -hmm. and our understanding. Um, actually, prior to the North American Lutheran Church that you named, yeah, uh, the the what's what's the Lutheran uh, Lutheran congregations in Mission for Christ was formed as a uh, early lifeboat for churches to jump into. So was that and a denomination to, or a coalition group? It's an association. It's an association. It okay. It's an association, and, it, and notice it's congregational. Yeah. Lutheran okay. congregations. It's so it's about power structure. Uh, it was. Uh, we left, I joined, when, when we left the ELCA, uh, we joined the Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ. At that time, there were only about 40 churches. It was only about a year and a half old, and it was for churches who were leaving. Because our constitution of our local churches all said that we would lose our building <clears throat> and our assets mm -hmm. if we did not join another recognized Lutheran um, denomination. Hmm. We so, could not go independent. How did y'all, so uh, did you got, you, this Congregational Association of Lutherans, yeah. was it recognized by the ELCA? They had to. They had they did. to? How did, how did well, you? Well, they did. They did. Okay. I, I, I think they would have been taken to court if they didn't. Okay. So this association And there are very formed. few court. There's very few, the ELCA was involved in very few court cases as opposed to what's happening now in the United Methodist Church or what happened in the Episcopal Church. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's gotten quite litigious. In fact, there's been developments in Oklahoma just uh, yesterday. Um, a, a judge came out in favor of a local church against the annual conference above them, so that's exciting. Good. But um, within the, the ELCA uh, disaffiliation drama, there wasn't much litigiousness. There was just the formation nope. of this association. The ELCA recognized it. And then um, yep. how many, it says today that the North American Lutheran Church has 
over 420 congregations. Did the did the Congregational Lutheran Association eventually merge into the North American no. Lutheran Church? No, it didn't. There's about there's about 800 churches within Lutheran congregations in Mission for Christ. It is a very flat organization, and the North American Lutheran Church. Do you want more? Well, are, which one are you and you? Well, <laughs> you you were not, you're retired now, but you were yeah, a pastor at the time. I was. And who so did you all go with? I was in a part of Lutheran Congregations in Mission for Christ. Okay, which has 800-some congregations now? Uh, 800. Okay, okay. And, and uh, many congregations share uh, between LCMC and the Lutheran Congregations in Mission for Christ, and the um, North American Lutheran Church. Okay, I think I understood that. You got the North American Lutheran Church, the yeah. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, L- LMCS, yeah. and then there was the one that you're a part of, the Mission... Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ. Lutheran I know. LC, Miss, oh, LCMC. MC, and then the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Was that part of this collection as well? No. Okay, totally okay. Separate. LCMC is not the same thing as LCMS. Isn't no, the alphabet so totally fun? different. Okay, okay. So North American Lutheran Church and the LCMC, which you're a part of, yeah. are in some sense uh, working together, acknowledging yes. each other. Okay. Yes, they acknowledge each other. Many of congregations are in both. One is the association. Okay. One is the denomination. Ah. And uh, the American Lutheran Church tends... Uh, that act started after Lutheran Congregations and Mission for Christ, mm-hmm. and it was re- it's really for churches, for the most part, that want uh, to um, uh, that are tended to be more high church and have a, a better view of the of bishops. The American Lutheran Church. North American Lutheran okay, Church. Okay, okay, yeah, they are yeah. higher church, higher ecclesiology, right. episcopacy. Yes. Okay, okay, that makes sense because congregational sensibilities on the LCMC side would yeah. be right. automatically uh, almost yep. more hostile to that. So that's the tradition that you're a part of now that is yep. not as into the episcopacy, that's more into congregational autonomy, you serve yes. in the local church. Do you serve as retired clergy, or would you just be considered laity at this point in the local church? I'm, you know, I'm retired clergy. As a matter of fact, I'm conducting a installation of a a, a Lutheran congregation's mission for Christ pastor at a church in in t- South Tucson uh, this coming Sunday. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so you're a part of uh, uh, an association of churches that's around 800 churches at this point, and um, after you guys have separated from the ELCA, uh, the the liberal majority mainline Lutheran group that we've been talking about, yeah, has there been peace in your association, or have you continued to feel um, forces of leftism trying to compromise the quality of your association? No, there's no forces of leftism trying to compromise the association. None. There are there the the if there's tensions, it's between uh, it's between some inner Lutheran understandings of of the Lutheran confessions. Yeah, that's how it's supposed to be, right? 
Right. Yeah. Good right. old school internecine. Yeah. A fam. A family. Family tensions. Yes. Okay. So, do you think that? Um, so, in the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, that split off from the Episcopal yeah. Church, they have had liberalism start to show its head in different places, and they're they're figuring out what to do about that. Do you have any theory as to why it is that you haven't seen that in the LCMC? I think it's I think it's because it is so congregationally structured. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you know, it's 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 the local pastor is uh, the main theologian of the congregation, and so you know, my first experience of really liberalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or leftist liberalism within um, what later would become the ELCA mm-hmm. was my experience in seminary. Yes, yes. Let's talk about and, that. Yes. All right. So uh, my first experience of real liberalism uh, within the uh, predecessor bodies to the ELCA would have been my seminary experience mm-hmm. in Berkeley. Uh, at one of the eight theological uh, seminaries in the ELCA. And um, it was crazy. I mean, it was just absolutely, I, and I, I was warned of it prior to, by my parish pastor mm-hmm. who warned me that this was a liberal place, but this was, it was only an hour and a half from my home. And uh, I wanted to stay close to family while I was in seminary, sure. knowing that I would, for the most part, I would end up in the Midwest as a Lutheran pastor. Um, so, you know, just, here's a, here's a story. My first class, um, uh, it's an Old Testament Bible class, the first day in seminary. And uh, we walk into the class. There's 40 of us students in the room. The professor, I won't name him, uh, he, he's since passed, uh, walks in, slams the door. He's holding a Bible. He throws it against the wall, yells out, God. And... Um, and then begins to lecture us on how he did not uh, harm the word of God, mm. which is not the Bible. Right. It's truly Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he did not take God's name in vain because God's name is not God. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was all about shock. Yeah. And uh, and uh, trying to, as, as they told us, to break our na- naive, our naive beliefs. Um, in the faith that we were taught in our local churches. Um, and that was the first day. Uh, you know, that professor then later would go on to uh, renounce the physical resurrection of Jesus um, and any miraculous stories that happened in Scripture. And he's an ordained pastor within the uh, denomination and training uh, us to go out into local churches. Yeah, anyone who's been paying attention to this, uh, whether they're ELCA or UMC or any number of other denominations, really won't be very shocked to hear this. This is par for the course. I attended seminary at Boston University School of Theology, where they saw it as their task right on the front end um, to straw man traditionalist theological arguments and to steel man um, uh, liberal critiques of the Bible or of traditional faith and just kind of make a mockery of traditional um, Orthodox faith, whether you're talking about Methodist or Lutheran or Roman Catholic or anything. And at a certain point, it just becomes sad and passe 
But um, certainly when you were going to seminary and the uh, that would have been in the early 80s. It was 82. Yeah, that would have been quite shocking. And for a lot of people still, okay. it's very shocking to go to seminary and just see uh, the chutzpah that these yep. uh, professors have. And then it's particularly demor- demoralizing to see when the denominational oversight structure becomes aware of it, and they're completely ambivalent to it. In fact, that seems to be what they want is um, uh, the only people that make it through seminary and go through the, the ordination process are so demoralized in uh, authentic Christian theology that they've essentially um, participated in the long march through the institutions, which oh, yeah. took place in the academy first and now has entered into the main line. And the only answer that people seem to have found uh, is getting away from any kind of ecclesiology that's top-down. Because if if it's a winner-take-all system, then the left, progressive left, is going to shoot for the top and grab it and not let go. And so the only answer is to not be subject to top-down power. Yes. And, and so I, I think that that's why LCMC has been able to maintain itself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a orthodox and piet- and for the most part pietistic uh, lutheran organization is, is the lcmc growing shrinking s- maintaining uh i think it's maintaining yeah. uh it is doing some church planting but it's all locally run mm-hmm. and um there are um yeah there are signs of it growing i would say it's it uh, that the actually the the uh, new leader is is uh, an excellent man who just loves Jesus and is uh, quite wise in his his thinking and able to um, help the um, organization maneuver um, through what's happening within most mainline churches. How uh, are you constrained to um, the the contiguous fifty American states? What's the geographic region of of your association? There, uh, there are, I don't know the number, but I, I'm going to guess out of the 800, I bet there are 200 outside the uh, um, United States. There, some some of them are quite small. Uh, there are a number in Vietnam uh, that are, and okay. and and they just re- these are churches that reached out uh, uh, to the LCMC looking for some kind of some kind of organization. Yeah, uh, to connect with, and the would I be right in assuming that the baseline of association is that uh, a congregation has to assent to the Apostles' Nicene and Athanasian creeds as well as the Augsburg Confession? Uh, yes, yeah, I would that, and of course, the belief that Scripture is the source and norm of okay. life and faith. Sure. Okay. Yes. Well, it sounds solid. It, uh, you know, if I were trapped in the UMC or uh, the LCA or any other liberal denominations, I would I would think that you're sitting pretty and feeling pretty happy. Do you do you feel pretty happy in your current association, or do you are there? So yes, I do. But you know, I have to tell you, Jeffrey, I actually belong to a Wesleyan church. Do you really? I'm retired, <laughs> uh, and uh, when we moved to uh, the far south side of Tucson, um, out of the cold Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the church we found. What kind of church is it? 
It, Wesleyan it, Church? It's, it's a Wesleyan Church. Okay, okay. I mean, that's the denomination? Yes, yeah, yeah that's the name of the denomination. Yeah, we yeah. we were looking at them, but they held a trust clause over the building. Yep, just they like have a trust clause. Yeah. And actually, we're just starting a building program, and I'm like holding my breath. Uh-huh, just, yeah. You know, but but it is what it is, and... Um, well, in the church... Yeah, when when you have a congregational mentality, the the primary thing that you're looking at is not what larger associations it's a part of. You're looking at the the integrity and quality of the body and its leadership, and so you obviously right. found something Correct. very fitting there. Even though yeah. they don't confess the, I guarantee you they don't they don't confess the Augsburg Confession there. Uh, but well, of course not. I <laughs> but but that's okay. That's not that's a non-essential. That. Yeah. Okay. I mean. Yeah, that, that was that was the thing that kind of you know uh, Ryan Turnipseed. I, I love the interview with him, but at the end, I'm saying I'd like to think we're part of the same thing and we can have fellowship together. And he's like, "Well, I don't know about that, but we do have a common enemy." And so, right? I uh, no, I, I no, I you know, I, if you believe in Jesus and and I I like the historic creeds. Mm-hmm. I'm it doesn't have to be all three of them, but mm-hmm. I'm hoping about the Nicene. I'm pretty. I, I'm I'm good. Well, when looking at the UMC, I, I think it is instructive to look at the ELCA and what happened there, what forces were at play. Today, I think the most famous ELCA pastor is Nadia Bowles-Weber, and you know who I'm talking about there. Yes. Yeah, she came. I, go ahead. I'm not so sure if she's still a pastor in the ELCA. Oh, okay. She might have left. But that would have been uh, recently. Okay. Uh, I think, and of course, she wasn't. She wasn't uh, expunged. I think she left, I yeah. think. Yeah. Well, and yet that's what we found in the United Methodist Church as well. Some of the, the biggest activists just get tired and leave. They're not, yeah. they're not kicked out. There isn't any kind of immune system that takes over and says, you've really got to go. And so even when they leave, you know, they've had their victory, and then they've left on their own terms. And so it's just uh, demoralizing for everybody. Um, so, so there are people rising to the surface in the United Methodist Church that already resemble Nadia Bowles Weber um, and are a part of that same ethos. What's there to be said uh, if I've got viewers that are still in the United Methodist Church? Okay, let's talk about people who are just now becoming aware of what's going on. You're probably not as aware of the dyna- dynamics as, as I am. I think I would just say, if at all possible, depending on where you are, you've just got to get out, if at all possible. Take your building and assets with you if you can, but even if you can't, if you don't have the fight in you, then you should leave. But you could probably speak pretty directly to, you had a mentor who decided to stay in the ELCA and fight. I'd like to hear how it went for him, and if there's any wisdom you can share with Methodists trying to stay in the UMC and fight for biblical faithfulness. Sure. He left eventually. Did he? Yeah. Maybe two years later. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one of my best friends uh, pastored. So I was in, you know, near Green Bay, Wisconsin. One of my, in my 20, last 25 years of pastoral ministry in one church. And one of my best friends was in um, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, which is not far. And uh, he conservative, loved Jesus. Um, and he decided that him and his church would stay within the ELCA, fight the good fight. They were promised, they were promised, he was promised personally by the bishop that there would always be room in the big tent mm-hmm. uh, for, 
for conservatives. Did they use that language of big tent? Oh, yeah, all the time. Constantly. I think most United Methodists think that we're the ones who've coined that term and that concept, but no, the ELCA had the exact well, same. Okay. You, you, you might have coined the term. I mean, you coined the Sparkle Creed. I don't know why. No, the UCC coined yeah. the Sparkle Creed. Okay. <laughs> oh, 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 the UCC. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. All right. So, but anyway, so, the bishop promised that there would always be space for them in the Big Ten. Be, always be space. Always be space for them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, you know, 50, it, it, he lasted 15 years, him and his church, and eventually, just I think two years ago, um, they did exit. And the reason for that was the, um, the local senate, the bishop of the local senate uh, put on his, um, per, on his board that oversaw the entrance of new pastors mm-hmm. into the senate, um, a transgender individual. Mm-hmm. And so the conversation then with him and that in the bishop was, well, how can a conservative ever get through that mm-hmm. interview? Right. Because you had to be interviewed and accepted with by the Senate and the Senate bishop in order to receive a call within a local church within that region. Mm-hmm. So it just and wasn't going to happen now that they were putting just, people on the board. That there would be no more conservatives welcome in the East Central Senate of Wisconsin. Yeah, and this is one of the things that conservatives continually, you know, um, get hoodwinked by. We we assume that people on the other side are motivated by the same sense of decency no. and loyalty. But the thing is, um, they see conservatives as directly responsible for. The depression, anxiety, suicide of uh, non-conforming sexual minorities and and other uh, uh, non-white people. So they lay that at our feet. There is no way for them to be happily in connection with people like you and me. They see us as the enemy. And and I'm gonna. You sent me a couple articles to kind of familiarize myself with Lutheranism in America. One of them describes Nadia Bowles Weber leading a youth. Uh, function at the ELCA and doing something that I would uh, assimil- uh, associate with the same thing as the Sparkle Creed, where there are baptismal vows that traditionally Christians say, where she inverted them and made them speak not against the forces of evil, but against people like me and you. Um, so in, in that event, when um, a denominational body has suffered a hostile takeover by far-left progressivism, there's not going to be room for, for anyone who thinks that God's Word is the, the Bible, that, that Christ and the Bible are perfect expressions of who God is and what He wants from us. It's just not going to happen. And so any conservatives trusting progressive liberals that there will, they will always be tolerated and given space and voice, um, well, I mean, it would, be, would we be right to say, hey, man, they're lying to you. Just don't believe them. Oh, or I think they're lying. Yeah. I, they might not know. They might not really know they're lying. But, you know, my last number of years within the ELCA and then following, mm-hmm. um, I was just told numerous times, I'm a hater. Sure. I hate people. Yeah. It's not because, uh, you know, when the discussions originally started, say, around the presenting issue of... Um, homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about, it was a theological debate. Uh, but liberalism turned it from a theological debate to a justice issue. Mm-hmm. And they're just, and 
my view is unjust. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're and, on the right side of history. They're they're right. with the angels. You're yeah. uh, locked in the past in this draconian backward yeah. uh, tradition that just needs to die. And if you're right. not willing to get with the times, then exactly. y- you've got to get out. Yeah. And I am the enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am the enemy. As a matter of fact, when I uh, our our bishop. So when we were when we were in and we first started questioning what we saw, this would have been about 2005, what we saw within the uh, national church, the denomination, the movement towards the blessing of gay unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, my congregation invited, you know, the, the bishop to come and speak uh, to our leaders. There was about 40 uh, in the leadership mm-hmm. with spouses. And um, in the midst of the conversation, uh, after he was confronted, well, he was actually asked, uh, you know, do you, what's your view of scripture regarding homosexuality? And, um, he flew off into a tirade. He couldn't answer the question or didn't. And then eventually said, well, scripture is not the only source and norm church. Mm. Uh, the person who was leading the discussion or the question. Man, and isn't that funny that in Lutheranism, where Martin Luther was the corrective yeah. against additional things being added to the scriptures, right. sola scriptura, that within the Lutheran tradition that someone can say that and not get laughed out of the room. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, his comment was, uh, there are other sources. He was then asked by, by the questioner, mm-hmm. uh, can you name those other sources? Very good. Yeah. And he refused. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course he would. Of course he would. Because... You know, I, I, this is, you know, and this is an example of, I, I not to, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just thinking of a, a Bible study that I was conducting once with a group that was, um, well, they were ELCA, in the ELCA stronghold mm-hmm. within my, within my uh, church. You know, I mean, that were extremely loyal. Mm-hmm to the denomination for whatever the reasons they had come from other churches most of them uh and i'm conducting a bible study in this in this group they they formed a group and they had bible studies and i and they invited me to come and present and i did and uh, i'm doing a bible study one time and the guy one of the guys asked me he says well do you expect us to really believe what the bible says Uh (laughs) you know i was like yeah. I was like, I couldn't believe it. What do you think you're doing uh, here, man? If you're not here to believe I, the Bible, what what are you doing? Bible. Right. And I said, yes. And he said, I, uh, we don't have to because uh, we're saved by grace. Oh, sure. Yeah. And um, we're Lutheran. We're saved by grace. Not, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, Luther, that... Oh my gosh! Anyway, that's just crazy. Yeah, the way the way that they lift up things that are synonymous and together, and then pit yeah. them against each right. other is um, it, it, in a previous age, people like that would be laughed out of the room. One of the things oh, yeah. um, uh, there's a term called mass formation psychosis, where at different points in history, you can look at cultures that kind of commit suicide, go insane for a little bit, and there are people looking at our present cultural moment and and are convinced that we're going through a mass formation psychosis right now through just continual pressure of neo-Marxist forces over the last 50 years. I obviously believe that's somewhat true because there, there are certain things that on their face 
are just ridiculous that we are taking seriously as a culture. And you would like to think that you can win people back to sanity, but that that doesn't seem to be uh, possible within these large institutions. In fact, um, the only solution seems to be detaching, decoupling for a bit. Um, And then so there's... I don't know. I'm sure we could talk forever about it, but uh, yeah. my my idea was just drawing lines of connection between what happened with the Lutherans and what's what's happened in, with the Methodists. I think I think the United Methodists would have gone the same way as the ELCA earlier, were it not for our international component that yes. was much more faithful. So we've we've had this kind of delayed thing. It looks like there's going to be an, a, a victory by the liberal progressives next year, but a lot of different things could happen. I'm just trying to think about if I if I were still in the UMC, what connection points would I need to see? And I think that would just be these power dynamics work the same yeah. in all institutions. When you have a top down, the the progressive left gains the top, generally Im- imposes more and more conformity, makes the uh, words mean less or mean nothing, um, so that whatever's on paper really becomes irrelevant. And over time, there's a, a, a complicity and a group lying among the clergy and the, the gatekeepers that eventually completely degrades the quality of the, uh, uh, the body, such that those who still believe that words have matter and that God's word is eternally true and not subject to the whims of culture, that we just have to, to get out and leave. The ELCA made it a bit easier, it sounds like, for they local did. churches to leave than the UMC. Well. So they did early on. So we were we exited very early, mm-hmm. and uh, they were encouraging us to leave. And as as I was told by um, one of the uh, pastors who was in leadership within the Senate, uh, we should leave because we're infecting other churches. Mm-hmm. Um, as as we were then bringing up, and I was bringing up. Uh, problems that I saw within the ELCA and their theological drift mm-hmm. to the left and their, their loss of confessional of a confessional life and creedal life. Um, so they wanted, they wanted us to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were encouraged to leave. Yeah, often. Right now in the UMC, there's this kind of love hate dynamic where they get mad at conservatives who say those things and highlight them and yet they get mad when they leave and they take their resources sure. with them. You know, right. because they, the, yeah. Did you experience the same thing in the ELCA? Um, yes, but it's a different structure. Again, okay. in the ELCA, mm-hmm. uh, we uh, it was all voluntary, uh, our church giving. Oh, really? There uh, wasn't to, any? Yeah. Okay. We, at, you know, at the height, we were giving probably 9% of our income and and two years before we left we withdraw withdrew giving yeah. and they had nothing they could do about it that's interesting yeah these these different ways of doing denominational life together really have big implications so yeah w- as united methodist churches are leaving the the denomination our my former denomination is saying goodbye to these compulsory we call them apportionments dollars but within the ELCA, as conservative churches left, they weren't saying goodbye to any money because they already weren't giving. Right, and and I think, but I think that there was the hope that uh, eventually the pastor would take another call or would retire, mm-hmm. and if they to keep them, keep churches, so that they could then replace the pastor because you can't, you couldn't in the ELCA, you can't, a church can't call a pastor, yeah, uh, without 
the bishop signing off. Sure. Yeah. That's a that's a bottle bottle. What's that called? A bottleneck. Yeah. I don't know where. Bottle. It's where bottleneck. You you can yeah. you can have separation up to a certain point or autonomy to a certain point, but there yeah. the the institution finds ways to continue to influence and exercise power. So right. Let me so, ask you this. Therefore, oh, the go hope ahead. of fi- the hope of future financial dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that also, makes sense. The ability also the ability to say, well, we're not losing as many churches. You know that uh, we're all's well and good as as we would constantly hear within the synodical um, uh, conference meetings. Yeah. Within six months uh, in the UMC, it's been, oh, just these Trump loving backwards people are leaving. It's only 2.5% of total congregations. It's nothing. It's a dribble. Now it's up to 10% of congregations. They're going, ah, yeah, it's a lot, but we'll be fine. We still got 90%. Uh, and then it's probably, uh, who knows how high it's going to go, but yeah, they, they have to maintain their morale and this narrative that that we were the evil bigots and they're better off without us, but we were still wrong to take these buildings that we built up and these assets that we uh, managed. Yeah. So it's it's just an icky thing. I, I wonder, within the yeah. Wesleyan Church or the LCMC, are you aware of these bodies talking about what's going on in the United Methodist Church at all, um, or are we not as important as uh, or or is the UMC not as important as it thinks it is? Um, well, one, I'd have to say I'm, I, I'm not connected, you know, with, with the structures that much anymore. Right. I know that there are Lutherans who are looking at the United Methodist Church and what's happening. Uh, probably because, at least in the conservative circles, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, many saw what happened in, was it uh, 2019? Uh, within your annual conference, general conference, yeah, and, the large, gathering. you know, and we're like, well, this is one of the few churches that is going to survive this mm. uh, because of their because of uh, the international structure, right? And um, and watching it fall apart, yeah, uh, has been disheartening. It's really nuts. Yeah, it's weird because yeah. like they were supposed to leave, right. and then they just said, no, we're not gonna. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. the people at the top said. We're not going to make them, and in fact, we're kind of with them. And then at that point, it's just like, oh well, I guess, guess yeah, we've got to leave. Yeah, it's just nuts. No sense of I integrity. Think, yeah, you know, and and for for many conservatives, yeah, within the ELCA, pastors mm-hmm. who were choosing to stay, like my friend, I think part of it was look at all the assets, the right. buildings, yeah. the colleges, yeah. the seminaries uh, that the ELCA. Um, has right, and we don't want to lose those. Mm-hmm. We we want mm-hmm. those for future generations to be places of of uh, to proclaim the love of Jesus, uh, and and you know at this point confessional Lutheranism. Right, and uh, I just saw those lost. I mean, early on, I saw those. The, the, there was no redeeming that. Yeah. You have to be able to. You have to let go of. I well that. I had to let go of all of that in order to survive, and again to focus on my local church and uh, our need to evangelize. Yeah, yeah, uh, our local community because I can't evangelize. I, I couldn't evangelize. Um, you know, the state of Wisconsin. I had to evangelize uh, the town I was in. Right. Yeah. That was my call. Yeah, our conversation. I'm going to be meditating on our conversation for I don't know weeks, months out, but. Um, the things that I'm holding on to, scripture. I mean, here's what they do: they hold you hostage with 
the scriptures that clearly tore, uh, call to unity and ecumenism. You know, we're all called to be one as Christ and the Father are one. And then they they grab the levers of power to the unity, and they say, "Well, you're not going to cause a division, are you?" And and there's this amazing machinery that these denominations constructed that could so easily be used for God's glory and the sanctification of this world. And yet, once they get co-opted, you're leaving. When you're looking at leaving, you're looking at abandoning ecumenism, abandoning connectionalism, abandoning the musculature of what has been created, and then just resting only upon the humility of the local church, which can also easily get corrupted. It's just a very demoralizing place to be in, and so we we have to continue praying that there is some kind of larger connectional, uh, confessional um, work that that can be done. Uh, I, I, for one at least... I will be depressed if the lesson learned this side of heaven is congregationalism is the only way to stay a true Christian. I would I would like to think that we can have larger bodies that are faithful. Uh, last thoughts from you before we draw yeah. this to a close. You can speak to that yeah. or just anything else that you have for my audience. Go ahead. Well, so I also would like to believe that you're right mm-hmm. that there that there is something beyond conf- uh, congregationalism. I just. Uh, haven't really truly seen it operating. Yeah. I, I, I think it is operating in other places in the world, uh, perhaps Africa, uh, um, especially among revival churches, either, either within the Anglican world or the Lutheran world, because there's revival happening in Lutheran congregations, um, you know, in Africa. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I can't, I don't hold out hope, probably because I've just been burned so many times and i've seen so many congregations burned by power yeah uh, the power power hungry people namely bishops yeah uh, within these structures i would love there to be you know and part of the romantic side of me historically would be uh yes there yeah. are bishops who are definitely worthy and i'm sure that there are yeah um uh, you know of the title mm-hmm. um, but i just haven't seen that many of them yeah, finding that proper balance of realism and romanticism is just yeah, one of right. life's real challenges. So I'm sure you and I will continue to to, to do that dance with God and the, the yeah, community right. of saints. So, uh, Well, we talked about limiting this to an hour. It's been a very worthy yeah. conversation, and thank you so much for uh, uh, offering your account and your wisdom to whoever tunes in here. Um, is there any way that anyone who has appreciated you, is there any uh, resource you direct them to or uh, prayer that you would ask them to say that would just please your heart? Well, I mean, a prayer would be uh, for, uh, I love local churches, even though I would hope to be beyond con- uh, just plain congregationalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just pray for your local pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean, I think it's a very uh, demoralizing situation that many clergy find themselves in, uh, whether it struggles within the church or, or it struggles outside the church, and especially with the upcoming election that's going to be happening and the divisions, no matter what side you're on. The di- you know, uh, I was just seeing what I went through in 2016 as parish pastor, I don't know about you, but was extremely that was demoralized. A rough year. Yeah, that was a rough year. It was a rough, you know, and uh, even if my guy might have won, um, so many 
uh, people fighting within local congregations. So I just have a prayer for for courage for clergy uh, to speak God's truth and um, maybe you know and to uh, to bless the local congregation in in the midst of different um, views politically. I think that's, that's where good- I'm at. I, I'm I'm 100% with you, Dean. So, um, friends, uh, we've reached the, the end of this conversation. Dean and I are going to stay on the line just a minute longer and, and pray privately. Um, I would urge you, before you move on to the next video or the next thing, just to, to go ahead and, and say the prayer that Dean has asked you to, and then um, consider ways that you might be an instrument of God's peace uh, in the upcoming uh, anxieties and and um, contentions that that are definitely coming. We don't get peace this side of heaven. So going ahead and deciding how it is that you're going to minister to your local church and pray for your pastor and uh, be a blessing this side of heaven, no matter what comes. So thank you so much for for joining me and Dean. We hope you've been blessed by this conversation, and uh, I'll be seeing you again soon. Bye, friends.